since last week's programme, my mailbag's been literally bursting at the seams, but it's just a temporary job till I get paid for the series. Tonight, <laughs> as you heard a moment ago, I shall be telling you how to stay alive for as long as you possibly can. And joining me again to embroider my monologue with apt vignettes are my two colleagues from the stage, Debbie Isis. Hello. And Stephen Frost. Good evening. So, how to stay alive for as long as you possibly can. To assist those of you taking notes, I shall divide my thesis into three sections. One. Looking good and feeling fit. Two. Stopping other people from killing you. And three. Clinging on to the will to live. <laughs> so, looking good and feeling fit. You might think that looking good won't necessarily help you live longer. Indeed, Barbara Cartland has lived an extremely long time <laughs> while looking absolutely dreadful. <laughs> Conversely, James Dean looked wonderful and died young. It's impossible to generalise, but it's usually the best thing to do if you want to make a case on the basis of very little research. <laughs> One thing that looking good will do for you is to improve your self-esteem, which is important to the will to live. If looking in the mirror fills you with self-loathing, don't do it. Just sellotapes and pictures of good-looking people over anything reflective <laughs> in your house. But there are things that all of us can do to improve the way we look. Here's an excerpt from a popular fashion programme to give you some ideas. Hello and welcome to Take Fashion. This week in our makeover slot, we'll be giving a dowdy working class housewife the star treatment with a hairstyle she'll never be able to afford again. And I'll be scouring the country for someone slightly overweight to humiliate with lycra. And if that hasn't depressed you enough, I'll be watching the Paris catwalks for that little black dress that any six-foot-fifteen-year-old on a vast income can wear. Later on, I'll be talking to the editor of Her magazine about why she's scouring the playgrounds of Britain for the face of 1994. And I'll be asking supermodel Natalie St. Van der Lopez how she went from shy Islington schoolgirl to chain-smoking anorexic with breast implants overnight. But now, more theme music! Of course, looks aren't everything. Peel away Tom Cruise's skin and all you're left with is a deep feeling of satisfaction. <laughs> Take away Greta Scatchy's fine clothes and she's ready to do the next scene. And what looks healthy is very subjective. If someone has a suntan, their skin looks radiant with health. Of course, it's dry, damaged and precancerous, but I suppose it's a question of swings and roundabouts. For a nation of people with such an absurd pride in being white, it's surprising how much time and effort the English put into turning brown, or better still, red and flaky. <laughs> An Englishman's idea of a holiday is to be flat out on a beach smothered in oil, and yet if he sees a cormorant in the same situation, it's a national emergency. <laughs> but back to the skin. There is a popular cliché to the effect that health nuts look really unhealthy. This is not because self-righteousness is bad for the complexion, but because worrying about diet is symptomatic of worry generally. No one without a care in the world is going to go out of their way to buy corn. <laughs> but a vegetarian diet doesn't have to be dull. The reason that vegetarian food is so often boring is that it's made by vegetarians. <laughs> Many vegetarians seem to believe that anything which might be regarded as a seasoning is made from crushed up dead baby animals. So if you want to go out for a vegetarian meal and have more evidence that you're eating something than the fact that your jaw is going up and down, you do well to go for something from a culture that uses spices. Indian cooking has excellent vegetarian recipes. Unfortunately, many white English people were put off Indian food at an early age by their mother's attempts to make curry. When I go to my favourite Indian restaurant in South London, I have a wonderful, delicious, savoury meal full of wonderful herbs and spices like cardamom and fenugreek. 
but when white people's mums make curry, a great amount of fruit seems to creep into the scenario. <laughs> Apples, sultanas, bananas, hundreds and thousands on the top, sponge fingers on the bottom. <laughs> Jelly. Because putting some fruit in some dinner is our idea of exotic. It just transports us to a tropical paradise. This is especially true of canteen food. Whack a pineapple ring on something and you've got toad in the hole, Hawaiian style. <laughs> I have to say that I'm not generally in favour of fruit in dinner. Fruit is pudding in my book, unless it's grapefruit segments with a glacé cherry on top, in which case it's a starter. If you go recklessly mixing sweet and savoury, it's a slippery slope to monstrosities like liver meringue pie. <laughs> But luckily, it's now much easier than it used to be to find recipes which are both healthier and more interesting than standard British fare. Now, Debbie's been watching a lot of daytime television to get some ideas for appetising alternatives to diet-busting, high-cholesterol British favourites. That's right, Jeremy. And today I'm going to show you my mouth-watering, low-fat version of old-fashioned steak and kidney pud. I call it my crispy tuna fish and sweet corn hot pot Italian style. <laughs> Italian style because it's got some tomato puree in it. Now then, what you need is an 8-ounce can of tuna. Now, it's important to get the cans with the tuna flakes because they're less fattening. Why is that? There's hardly any tuna in them. It's pre-flaked for people who don't know how to break it up with a fork. <laughs> now, don't worry if you can't get hold of a tuna. A tin of mackerel, sardines, luncheon meat or apricots will do just as well. <laughs> now, to the tuna, I'm adding a 12-ounce can of sweet corn. And that'll give the meal that lovely, authentic sweet corn That's taste. That's right! <laughs> now, of course, no steak and kidney pudding is complete without the pastry topping. But I'm leaving out the suet, which is very high in fat, and indeed, the pastry. Instead, my topping is made from low-calorie crisp breads, which give it a lovely, crunchy, hard, dry texture. <laughs> now, the beauty of this dish is that all the ingredients are already cooked. So all you have to do is warm it through in the tumble dryer, garnish, and serve. <laughs> For the garnish, I'm using a sprig of parsley. You won't be eating the garnish, so just cut the picture off the packet of parsley, or just write the word parsley on a piece of paper and put it on the plate. <laughs> and I'm serving the meal with a lovely hot jacket potato. And instead of that big, creamy dollop of butter or sour cream, I'm just going to suffer. <laughs> So there we are, Debbie demonstrating that healthy eating doesn't have to be enjoyable. <laughs> so much for diet. Now, another part of feeling fitter is, of course, exercise. But a lot of exercise has more to do with looking good than feeling fit. Bodybuilding, for example. Bodybuilding gives people big muscles. But people who need big muscles usually have them anyway. Nobody who spends all day carting hods full of bricks up and down ladders feels the need to unwind with a couple of hours in the weights room. They shape up and dance with 15 pints in a karaoke machine. <laughs> Weights rooms are full of the unemployed and graphic designers. There will also be the odd nightclub bouncer, but even they don't need big muscles per se. They just need their suits to be too tight. They could achieve the same effect with some cream buns and a sewing machine. <laughs> Doctors tell us that what we really need in the way of exercise is to do something which gets us out of breath three or four times a week, which means that people with asthma are extremely fit. <laughs> Now, five minutes ago, we placed Steve on a hypermetric treadmill inside a pressurised wind tunnel of pure hydrogen. We also taped some electrodes under his fingernails in case he tried to get out. Then we put a couple of laboratory rats in with him and filled his pockets with Smarties. How's it going, Steve? The point of aerobic exercise is that you can judge whether you're doing enough by your breathing and your pulse. But there is a problem here. When you take up exercise for the first time, you only have to run round the block and you collapse on the pavement, gasping for air with your heart pounding like a steam hammer. You're fully exercised and it's only taken about three and a half minutes. 
But as you get fitter and fitter, it takes longer and longer to get shagged out. So you end up running miles and miles every day to get any sort of reaction out of your heart and lungs. So you may live longer, but there's no point because all the extra time you get, you spend running. <laughs> but let's get back to Steve. Okay, and switch the machine off. Right, Debbie, now let's hear how Steve got on. Well, Jeremy, Steve's heart rate went up to 122, but in the lead with 135 is Tommy the Rat. I have to admit to being slightly jaundiced about exercise, being the sort of person who gets whiplash in rocking chairs. But one sort of exercise which is apparently very good and which I have tried is swimming. I decided to have swimming lessons at Clapham Pool. I joined the beginner's adults class because I thought we'd all be in the same boat. Well, not in the boat, obviously, there'd I mean, be no challenge. But we'd all be at the same level. But there were people at Clapham Pool, beginner's adult swimming lessons, who could swim adequately, nay, well. And these people were ploughing up and down the deep end, doing butterfly, which no bastard can do. <laughs> and crammed in the shallow end is me and about 500 dinner ladies. <laughs> and you could tell in the changing rooms the ones who could already swim, because they had all the right swimmers' gear. They had trendy shorts and goggles and earplugs, nose clips, water skis, harpoon guns. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Martin's and tracksuit buttons. And obviously, their sole raison d'etre, which is French, but not a recipe for soul, is to go to lessons in things they can already do to make other people feel small. They're completely proficient in the whole syllabus of evening classes. Swimming, carpentry, tap, modern sequence, ballroom. But they just go along to humiliate people who can't already do it. That's like me going to a creche saying, potato printing, bullets, this is a fax machine, this is. <laughs> but friends have castigated me for my inability to swim. They tell me I must learn to swim because it could save my life one day. When I'm dying from a stab wound on the way back from the off-license one night, I'll be kicking myself I never mastered the doggy paddle. <laughs> this brings me on to the subject of stopping other people from killing you. Unfortunately, I'm not ready to do that bit yet. Oh, but Jeremy, you must. That's the perfect link. <laughs> a link like that doesn't come along every day. I know, but I've still got other stuff to do. Well, you're passing up the opportunity of a lifetime. Fine. The subject of drowning brings me on to accident prevention. Uh, now, that's a good enough link. I don't know what you're worried about. I have compiled a list of do's and don'ts to prevent the kind of accident which can shorten your life. And Debbie gets to do all the numbers this time because I think Steve needs to learn a bit of discipline. Aww. One. Before going to bed at night, unplug the TV and video and make sure you extinguish any fires which may have broken out. Two. In the event of a fire, lie on the floor, unless the floor is on fire, in which case lie on the couch. Three. Never leave a chip pan unattended on a railway platform. Four. Chip pan fires are extremely dangerous, although they do substantially reduce the fat content of your chips. And five. And five. <laughs> five. If a fire does break out in your chip pan, don't try to put it out with lighter fluid or kindling. Simply cover yourself with a damp cloth at arm's length, retire to consider your verdict, and lie in the recovery position until the ambulance arrives or hell freezes over. <laughs> this brings me on to the subject of the health service. Yeah, only just, though. Just is as good as safety to a man on the high wire. <laughs> there is clearly a crisis in health care. The government believes they have identified the problem. Too many hospitals. Wherever you find hospitals, you find sick people filling up the beds and spreading disease around the place. Close down the hospitals and you get rid of all the dirty sick vermin. But why then, if there are too many hospitals, are people dying on their way to their nearest accident and emergency department? 
The obvious answer is too many ambulances, cluttering up the road and acting as a disincentive to enterprising people who want to drive themselves to casualty. <laughs> now, I know that many of you are thinking that Virginia Bottomley gets away with wrecking the health service because she's the only person in the Conservative Party that anyone can imagine having sex with, but... <laughs> let me explain how the internal market affects you and sets some of your fears to rest. Let's imagine you become ill. You experience pain in your lower back and difficulty in passing water. Without delay, you must consult your independent financial advisor. <laughs> he will be able to tell you the kind of health insurance that's right for you. In this case, an abdomen-only policy with a shortfall hernia clause attached to a unit trust. You approach a health insurer who won't touch you because you're ill. Then you see your GP, who suspects kidney failure, does a thorough diagnosis of his quarterly budget and phones round to get the best price on a new kidney and the trade-in value of your old one. <laughs> he accepts a bid from the Organ Works, the best-known high street transplant franchise, and if all goes well, you'll be in and out in a day. If not, they'll dump you around the nearest casualty ward where the NHS will save your life. <laughs> of course, the best advice to anyone who wants to live for a long time is not to get ill, and if you do contract an illness, to ensure that it's something that predominantly affects white heterosexual males, so you'll be taken seriously. <laughs> Executive stress is always a good bet. It only entails sweaty palms and wind, but it's got more clout than cholera. <laughs> Lower down the professional ladder, you're likely to suffer from serious stress. In fact, your boss may have recently sent you on a stress management course, not realising that it's management who are causing you the stress. <laughs> but the point is that nowadays, the health of mind and body are seen as part of the same thing. If you're going to be at the height of your intellectual powers, you've got to be physically fit. And if you're going to work out for two hours a day, you've got to be mental. <laughs> hundred years ago, psychiatric patients were treated abominably because of ignorance. Today, it's because of willful neglect in the Tory government. <laughs> we also have the strange phenomenon of famous people discussing their mental problems with psychiatrists on the broadcast media. Many of you will be familiar with Dr. Anthony Clare, a rather elegant Dublin psychiatrist with the high cheekbones and slicked back hair who breaks and humiliates celebrities on Radio 4. <laughs> Dr. Clare began with people one knows to be highly strung and a bit batty like Eartha Kitt and Claire Rayner, but in more recent years he's had to scratch around to find people daft enough to be pushed over the edge as a bit of light relief after the shipping forecast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to On The Psychiatrist's Couch. This week on the couch is Michael Bennett, presenter of the popular DIY series, Do It Yourself. Now, Michael, this need you have to do it yourself, to carry out home improvements in a secluded environment, is that some kind of retreat? Uh, no, not really, uh, Anthony. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it on telly in front of millions of people. <laughs> so, in fact, you're torn between a craving for isolation and a compulsive exhibitionism. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I've always dreamed of being on telly. In this dream, Michael. <laughs> Do you see your parents? Well, not as often as I should, no, but I'm going home for Christmas. You think that Christmas is important for you because of your rich symbolism of a virgin birth, the mother of God who was untainted by sex, and therefore a time when you can confront your own mother's sexuality in an unthreatening context? Well, I... <laughs> I think it's got more to do with presents, really. Is there a particular present from your childhood that meant a great deal to you? Uh, my teddy. And what did teddy represent? Bear. So something untamed, wild, animal, unrepressed? It was only a toy bear. So you wouldn't have felt happy with a real bear? <laughs> well, not with claws, I don't suppose. And no. what do claws represent? Well, death if I kept it in the house. So we thought that by owning a toy bear and a real bear, you could somehow prevent your death. 
No, just what's going on. Tell me, Michael, this bear, did you drag him around by his ear? Why'd you ask? Oh, just asking. <laughs> well, 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 that's a fair enough question. Um, yes. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. You know, like every little boy dragging Teddy around by his ear, bumpity bumpity bump down the stairs, and his ear got progressively looser and more worn, and then one day it came off altogether. That's right, yes, I remember it now. Because my mummy said, It's all right, Mickey. Don't worry. Teddy will go to the Teddy Ambulance, to St. Teddy's Hospital, and they'll make him better. And then, late that night, I woke up and I heard this strange rattling sound and I crept down the stairs and there was a light on in the front room and I peered round the door and there was Mummy and there was Teddy. He hadn't gone to the Teddy Hospital. Your mother had lied to you, hadn't she, Michael? Yes, she had. All your childhood illusions were shattered, weren't they, Michael? Yes, all my childhood illusions were shattered. She was mending him on the sewing machine <laughs> and the needle was going up and down and up and down and up and down. Because there is no Teddy Ambulance and no St. Teddy's Hospital. There's just a factory full of Teddies. They all look exactly the same. Well, thank you very much, Michael. You've been a delightful guest and thanks for being on the programme. Next week I'll be joined by a former member of the Turkish Secret Police who will be giving me a hand at the questioning. Until then, goodbye. Of course, going completely to pieces can shorten your life, not only by affecting your physical health, but by leading to suicide. In fact, there's not really a lot to be said for having a complete emotional breakdown, other than the fact that it passes the time when there's engineering works at Doncaster. <laughs> the subject of breakdown brings me on to the will to live. Yeah, but you haven't done stopping other people from killing you. Oh, blimey, haven't I? <laughs> do stopping other people from killing you, but don't try linking it in. Just do it. Do you think the public will mind? Probably. You know what people who listen to the radio are like. They all sit there naked with balaclavas on, waiting for something to phone in and complain about. <laughs> oh, well. Um, stopping other people from killing you. There are all sorts of martial arts in which you can train to prepare yourself for dealing with violence. Above all, they teach you about control and mental discipline. But when did you ever have the shit kicked out of you by somebody with control or mental discipline? <laughs> the people who are best at fighting are never the people who understand poise, breathing, or Eastern philosophy. They're the dangerous, mad, ugly people who are short on communication skills and never wear loose-fitting white bathrobes which are easy to grab hold of when they're out looking for a fight. <laughs> Moreover, there will usually be more than one of them. Other men have given me handy hints for just such a situation. Suggestions like, always hit the biggest one first. No. He's the one you buy a drink for. In short, try to avoid the burgeoning fracker, if at all possible. Here are Debbie and Stephen with some examples of the kinds of things not to say when you're trying to defuse a violent confrontation. Number one. Temper, temper. Number two. Oh, yes. You're very tough when there's nine of you and only one of me. Number three. Can't you see that it's not really me you're angry with? It's yourself. And number four. Look, why don't you just ruddy well clear off? Number five. If you resort to violence, that just means you've lost the argument. And number six. Could I see your warrant card, please, officer? <laughs> you might want to try channeling your own aggression into sports. And, of course, the most aggressive of these are blood sports. 
When it comes to running around after animals, you really need a rural environment. If you live in a big town, the equivalent of fox hunting or hare coursing will be to go to a pet shop, buy yourself a gerbil, take it home, break its legs and kick it around the bathroom a few times. <laughs> Alternatively, you may become one of the growing number of enthusiasts for fighting dogs. Emotionally stunted men, half-starved, dogs bred and trained to kill, take them furtively to pre-arranged locations and then let them off the lead in children's playgrounds. <laughs> when a man says, he won't hurt you, he's only playing, what he means is, I don't have a life, so why should you? <laughs> and even dogs that aren't vicious crap all over the place. The penalty for letting your dog foul the footpath shouldn't be a fine. It should be that anyone who so chooses can walk into your home any hour of the day or night and leave a steaming turd anywhere you're likely to walk. <laughs> of course, defecating in the home of a dog owner with the protection of the law is not only tremendous fun, but another way of expressing aggression without getting into a violent situation. But it can be hard to avoid the violence of others. When women are attacked, they often blame themselves. But they shouldn't take the law into their own hands. It's the job of the courts to blame them. <laughs> the police! The police offer conflicting advice on personal safety. If a lone woman is attacked somewhere, police advise all women to stay indoors for the rest of their lives. And yet if there's a whole spate of bombings in the run-up to Christmas and hundreds of people are being injured, police urge everyone to go about their business as normal. <laughs> a bomb is a horribly random weapon which can involve dozens of innocent people being killed or injured and several other innocent people being fitted up by the police. Fortunately, though, there is no longer the death sentence for murder. Nonetheless, many people in the police and prison service would like to see a return to hanging, which is why they put suicidal young offenders on remand wings and leave them to get on with it. There are only a handful of offences which the state can punish with the ultimate penalty of death, and the most notable are treason and arson in the royal dockyards. Treason covers anything from espionage to having an illicit relationship with someone in line to the throne, and given that most of us have had sex with at least one member of the royal family at one time or another... <laughs> We could all be swinging from the end of a rope, if they like that sort of thing. <laughs> As for royal dockyards, you might be surprised that there are any. It's hard to picture the royals hanging around the docks, well, apart from one or two of them, obviously. <laughs> but suffice it to say that there is little likelihood of any of us commoners setting light to anything in a royal dockyard in the normal run of things. So we are unlikely to lose our lives at the hands of the state. The police kill the odd person, but their morale is low, so we'd best not harp on about it. <laughs> Many people have been killed by the army in highly questionable circumstances, but this is explained by their having moved their hands in such a way that it looked as if they were reaching for a gun. Although how many people keep guns above their heads, I don't know. <laughs> but of course, the greatest number of casualties the state can cause is when it gets us into all-out war. Even if you're a civilian, you could be conscripted to fight. At one time, you could have avoided this by working in an essential industry, but the Conservatives have closed them all down. <laughs> so you'll have to somehow demonstrate that you are unfit for military service. Faking poor eyesight is the best plan. Don't pretend to be psychologically disturbed, as this will only get you drafted into the paratroop regiment. <laughs> of course, the spirit of the Blitz would be more or less redundant in the event of a nuclear war. If anyone does insist on being plucky and cheerful during the global holocaust, they'll probably find themselves being sent out to look for pizza. Then it'll be crispy. But the risks of nuclear war seem to have receded now that the arms race between East and West is over. So why do we still need nuclear weapons? 
because there's always the risk that some suicidal manic dictator in one of the world's trouble spots could develop the capability to build a nuclear weapon. Of course, one way we could stop them is by not putting the instruction leaflet in with the kid. But if they rang up and asked for it, we'd be over a barrel. But we're all going to die. Or are we? Good question, Jeremy. Thank you. Throughout history, there have been individuals who have had an uncommon ability to defy mortality. The main ones being Jesus of Nazareth, Rasputin and Captain Scarlet. <laughs> Rasputin did actually die eventually, but only after he had survived shooting, poisoning, drowning and Bernard Matthews' mini Kiev. <laughs> Jesus, of course, cannot be killed because we killed him once and he's buggered if he's going to come back so he can do it again. <laughs> Captain Scarlet falls more into the category of superhero. This might seem an appealing and glamorous way of staying alive for as long as possible, but you do have to be extremely fit. Superhero status is likely to elude you if you're allergic to cheese or a martyr to your verrucas. <laughs> but not only the good die old. Zombies, werewolves and vampires are also known to be extremely tough cookies. If you do become one of these, there will usually only be one very specific way in which you can be killed. Silver bullets and stakes through the heart are not very original and can actually be done. So you might opt for something more difficult, like a chocolate button through the skull, or a hundred weight of potatoes in your trouser pocket. <laughs> the living dead, however, are not undead, but actually dead, and have to be completely burnt to nothing before they'll stop traipsing around graveyards in slightly soiled bandages or shopping at Sainsbury's home base. <laughs> so there we are, just a few ideas for stopping other people from killing you. So, part three in my guide to staying alive. You've got three minutes left. How do you know? You're not a doctor. <laughs> three minutes in the show. Oh, I see. Yeah. Two if you can do it. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <clears throat> so, holding on to the will to live. This human emotion is now reckoned to be medically significant. Many doctors believe it can add months and years to a person's life. Mind you, I lost the will to live in my early 20s and it never did me any harm. But there are all sorts of reasons why life is worth living. The touch of a loved one, the smell of roses, the smile on the face of a child, apple blossom dancing on a spring breeze, and being alive to see Kenneth Clark go to his grave. <laughs> Some of you listening will not live long enough to see that, but rest assured, I'll be around to celebrate on your behalf. <laughs> Some of us live for what is, some for what might be. Some just never get round to composing their suicide note. But most of us, however appalling our circumstances might be, don't want to die. No matter how ghastly or inconsequential our lives may seem to others or ourselves, the fear that keeps our heart pumping blood around our body is the fear that we might miss something. It's the same determination that's made us watch Top of the Pops for the last 30 years. <laughs> so there we are. Just a few reasons for holding on to the will to live. Is that all they get? Well, you're the one that's in such a hurry. No, I'm not in a hurry. I was just worried about the audience. Should be. They'll probably top themselves after listening to Mr. Sunshine. And what about the people at home, Jezza? All those bedridden lighthouse keepers out there depend on us. <laughs> I just talk about the world as I see it, Deborah. Real life isn't always attractive. Yeah, well, neither's Nicholas Witchell, but at least he ends on a smile. <laughs> oh, great. Well, I just feel really guilty now. Oh, see if you can make the credits a bit cheery. Do me best. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation with its sideways look at the lighter side of life was written by that master of the not-too-depressing comic monologue, Jeremy Hardy, and also starred adorably cookie-tippy-lighted and that disarmingly offbeat gentle giant, Stephen Frost. 
The program was quite literally a positive production in every sense of the word for the BBC. Next week, how to stay inanely cheerful. Ha <laughs> ha! In the face of things which are only slightly irritating.